Well, where in fact does the mythology come from that I'm proposing to talk about? In the first place, surprisingly little of it is English. That is, surprisingly little is due to the descendants of the Anglo-Saxons who moved into this island from about the 5th century AD onwards. There is a great heritage of other things from the Anglo-Saxons. Law and custom, magic, folk mythology, fairy mythology, quite a lot of things. But extraordinarily little that you could call mythology. Uh, you have one instance of the epic of Beowulf, uh, but even that didn't originate in England. It originated on the continent. So there is really very little about the Anglo-Saxons. For practical purposes, what we're talking about here is mostly, almost entirely, the mythology of the Celtic people who were in these islands before and continue to be the predominant people in most of Ireland. But in England and points north, a great deal of this was lost. Because before it was written, before it was preserved in any literary form, the Anglo-Saxons swept over the country. It wasn't a very rapid sweep. I was taught at school that they sort of charged across exterminating the Britons so almost overnight, which of course wasn't it at all. It took centuries doing it. But still, it was a gradual sweep across the country which suppressed the Celtic culture that had been there before to a large extent, eliminated the Celtic-British language and replaced it with Anglo-Saxon. Um, so that the Celtic culture and tradition survived only in areas that kept the Celtic identity for a long time and the original languages principally Wales, to some extent the West Country, particularly Cornwall, parts of the north. The old British Kingdom of Ragged in the north lasted for quite a long time, the Kingdom of Strathclyde in Scotland. So one way or another, quite a lot survived in parts of the country that kept a Celtic identity and was handed down there. And even so, the traces are really very fragmentary and rather puzzling. We can retrieve it in bits and pieces. We can retrieve it in works where <clears throat> we can't be very sure whether what we've got what we're getting is authentic. And we can find quite a bit of it embedded and transformed in medieval literature, especially the Arthurian romances, particularly the story of the Grail which certainly has a good deal of ancient Celtic mythology embedded in it. But the romancers, of course, told stories in their own way for their own audience in a different language. So what they took, they transformed. And it's difficult to dig down or to say whether a given character is traditional. We can prove with some of them that they are. Arthur himself and Merlin and Guinevere and some of the knights at Arthur's court and Morgan Le Fay can be traced back further. But it's a very hit or miss sort of business. And there is a difference here from Greek mythology, for example, where we have plenty of literary sources, and very early ones, going right back to the epics of Homer, 
which uh, were probably written in their present form 800 BC or so and give us plenty of authentic tradition from much earlier times about the Trojan War and many other matters. Now there's no British equivalent of this. I like to think that there might have been a lost British ethic like Homer and that it might even be discovered someday, but not so far. We have some authentic stuff that is fairly early in the collection of Welsh stories called the Mabinogion, where some of the stories in the, are getting in the form that perhaps dates from the 10th century AD and there is clearly a lot of material that is far older but is difficult to sort out. And there are various summaries of early stories. But we have a further problem, which is very strange and unique to Britain as far as I know, that a great deal of what we accept as British legend, British mythology, whatever you like to call it, is due to one author in the 12th century and we really do not know how far he was using tradition and how far he was making it up. We know him as Geoffrey of Monmouth. Monmouth is a small town in southeast Wales where probably he was born. He was Welsh or possibly Breton because Bretons are a related people. Many of them came back into Britain with William the Conqueror and the Normans. But Geoffrey was certainly a Celt and he wrote to popularize and glorify the traditions of his people after the English and Norman conquests. We don't know very much about him. He was probably born about 1100. We know that he was teaching at Oxford from 1129 to 1151. We have his signatures on a few documents. He became a bishop towards the end of his life in a place in Wales, but probably never went there, died sometime in the 1150s. This is almost all we know about him, apart from his actual works. We know that he became very interested in Merlin as a traditional character. Uh, he wrote, he produced a book which he called The Prophecies of Merlin. Some of them may have been genuine, some of them he almost certainly made up himself. Later in life he produced a long poem, a poetical life of Merlin. In between, though, he produced his most important book, which is one of the most important books of the Middle Ages, generally known as the History of the Kings of Britain. This would have been about 1135 or 1136 or so. It's called The History of the Kings of Britain, which is perhaps the most misleading title ever given to a book because whatever it is, it certainly isn't real history. The question though is what it actually is. It doesn't take us any further with the authentic Welsh or anything because it's written in Latin. Geoffrey was a cleric. He used Latin as a matter of course. Churchmen did. It was the international learned language. But he claims to have been deriving this history of Britain from what he calls an ancient book in the British language. It might mean Welsh or it might possibly mean Breton. He said it had been given to him by another ecclesiastic, Walter, the Archdeacon of Oxford. Walter was a real person. We know that they knew each other because 
we find their signatures witnessing documents and things like that but whether this book ever existed nobody knows most academics think it didn't I think there probably was a book but how much there was really authentic in it we simply cannot say Geoffrey tells us almost nothing about it except that it gave him some information on the downfall of King Arthur uh, it's a very sweeping book it starts from <coughs> uh, the fall of Troy uh, and goes through about 1100 BC right through to the Roman period after the Roman period comes Arthur which is the most best known part of it uh, Geoffrey had a great deal to do with establishing the figure of Arthur um, he tries to make out that there was a British monarchy going on all that time uh, and where you can check him he's obviously not writing good history on the other hand he's certainly always using it except perhaps in some early parts he, never, he doesn't often seem to be making up out of absolutely nothing so it's a very tantalising book and a great deal of uh, the uh, of what we call or regard as the legends of Britain, British mythology, or whatever you like, is really due to Geoffrey of Monmouth's book. And how much older matter he put in it is very difficult to tell. We can identify some as being much older than himself, some perhaps not. So we have this very strange problem that a great deal of British mythology is due to a man who was for his time a brilliant writer of fiction and just for that reason we don't know how far we can trust him so this makes things very difficult for us but to revert to the Celts because we're really talking about Celtic people and their storytelling and their poetry and so on who were they? where did they come from? Well, what do the legends say first in Geoffrey of Monmouth and others? Well, the legendary history says that the first inhabitants of Britain were giants and their king was Albion, from whom the name Albion for Britain was taken. The, there are references to a legendary figure who may have been called Albion it's much more likely that the name Albion is a Celtic word which is probably related to Alp as in the mountains and means a high place because whichever way you approach Britain you see cliffs or hills or whatever but however that may be the legends say that first there were giants uh, who built Stonehenge and other great monuments then they were displaced by migrants from Troy that after the fall of Troy a great party of them led by a prince named Brutus were, le were led by the oracle of Diana to come to Britain and they more or less wiped out the giants and took over and most of Geoffrey of Monmouth's history is about this kingdom and they supposedly called it Britain after their leader Brutus and the uh, language British and so on and so forth so two waves of people giants and then so-called Trojans uh, who were the, le the legendary explanation of who the Celts were well in modern times archaeologists and historians have complicated this story a good deal uh, 
they have ident- tried to identify different waves of people who came into the country and built megaliths and so on uh, and some of them they have identified by uh, characteristic things that you dig up they were supposed to have been beaker people and battle axe people and then there are supposed to have been three invading waves of Celts beginning about 600 BC and going on to virtually the Christian era which is really getting to be a very very complicated story much more so than the legendary one the tendency now is rather to discount this sort of thing um, archaeologists are not so keen on these rather mythical sounding notions about great mass invasions and settlements and so forth they see more continuity on the whole there were changes there were cultural and other effects probably due to influential groups of people coming into the country settling but probably much more continuity than used to be thought so that from the megalith builders way back the, who of course according to the legend were the giants because it was believed that giants must have put up Stonehenge actually this would be 1500, 2000 BC or so coming down from them to people we can call Celtic in the last few centuries BC there may have been a fair amount of continuity traditions handed down and so forth and eventually we get people that we can call Celts from their um, characteristics their artifacts, their hill forts and things like that but perhaps not by any great invasions or anything Uh, the last phrase I've seen coined for this was cumulative Celticity that's a nice archaeological term that in the last few centuries BC cumulative Celticity was going on in Britain until you had the people we called Celts speaking recognisable Celtic languages and so on well I'm not going to get involved in complications like this but it does affect our thinking a little about some of these uh, legends for instance there is a tradition about Merlin having put up Stonehenge well Merlin didn't put up Stonehenge it was much later but still there seem to be some real traditions embedded in this story about Stonehenge came to be how it came to be there and that's much more believable if we can accept there was a kind of continuity down from that period and of course there's the familiar idea that Stonehenge was built by the Druids the Celtic priesthood well that is wrong certainly earlier but again it may not be absolutely wrong the druids may have been the spiritual heirs of some sort of perhaps shamanic priesthood of earlier times so when we get these <coughs> legends that seem to be reaching back a very long way perhaps some of them are it's not incredible but how in fact does it come to us well virtually all this Celtic material comes to us through Christian media through monks who copied things out poets who composed poems and so forth but at a time when the Celtic people were Christian 
uh, which were in Britain was well there were certainly Christians in Britain from the 4th, 3rd, 4th century but the majority would have been at least nominally Christian from about the 6th century on likewise in Ireland so these stories come to us through Christian media so you may say immediately can we trust them because if we're talking about pagan matter, pre-Christian matter can we trust what Christian authors did with it well actually we have found something rather interesting here which is different from most of other countries the Celtic Christians had rather a different attitude to the old gods and the old myths Celtic Christianity was very different in style, organization, from the Christianity of the continent. It was freer, it was based more on communities rather than hierarchy, and they had books that were forbidden on the continent. And more important for us, I think, is that the Celtic people, and indeed many of the Irish to this day, had a rather different attitude to the old gods and the old myths. On most of the continent of Europe, and is the parts that belong to the Roman Empire, which was really all the civilised part of Europe, the Christians had been persecuted by pagan authorities. Many had been imprisoned, forced to recant, thousands had probably been killed at one time or another. So, understandably, Christians in most of the continent saw the old gods as evil and the old myths as devilish. Now, so they saw it in very much more black and white terms. Now, the Celts didn't because there had been almost no persecution of Christians in Britain. There are records of three martyrs, and Dorgan is the best known, but that is a tiny number compared with the thousands who suffered in other places. In Ireland there was no persecution. There were very few Christians and it was outside the Roman Empire anyway. So they didn't feel that the old order was evil. They hadn't suffered at the hands of pagan authorities. So they were much more willing to keep the old myths, the old gods, the old goddesses. They had to adapt they couldn't call them gods and goddesses but they could keep them as kings and queens and enchanters and so forth in their stories and keep a lot of the mythology as it had been acclimatized, adapted and in the earliest stories and traditions we find that a lot of what you might call the pagan atmosphere goes on one thing particularly <coughs> Uh, is the idea of the other world and spelling it in one word this is not the other world in the Christian sense not heaven or hell or anything anything that came with Christianity it's the idea that there are a sort of parallel universe in science fiction terms perhaps under our feet perhaps invisibly around us but there was another, another order of reality and you find this constantly and that the idea that you could enter it and that it's a realm of spirits or fairy folk different beings one rather interesting thing about the Celtic Christianity as you know 
according to Orthodox Christianity uh, the reason why there is uh, Satan and the devils is because many of the angels rebelled against God and were cast out into hell now according to the Orthodox version which you find in the poetry of John Milton for instance it was one thing or the other most of the angels stood by God and stayed in heaven Satan and his angels turned against God and were cast into hell but the Celts were quite willing to admit uh, that there might be what you might call grey areas Uh, there were angels who perhaps had played both ends against the middle so to speak Um, you found them in uh, in one version of the Grail story which of course is Celtic derived you find them in the Celtic legend of St. Brendan's Voyage where he encounters neutral angels and it was believed by many that some of the fairy folk were neutral angels who were not allowed to stay in heaven but had quite a good time in between as it were and in Ireland there is very much the idea of the western paradise that out over the ocean there are mysterious islands inhabited by fairy folk, gods and goddesses and so on and so forth Uh, we can bring it right right back to home here in Glastonbury because one of the hills that was supposed to be a point of access to the other world was Glastonbury Tor Uh, the Welsh called it Enun and there is a story, we don't know how old it is that a Welsh hermit, St Cochran came and made his hermitage on uh, probably around the far side of the Tor away from the tower, away from the community and he received a summons to meet Gwynet Nith, the king of the fairies who ruled over the other, other world of Anuan and lived inside the Tor well at first Coughlin refused but Gwyn's messengers came and were rather more insistent and threatening so he said alright I'll come and meet him he very wisely carried a flask of holy water at his belt uh, they led him inside the tour through a mysterious entrance and here he found King Gwyn sitting on his throne and Gwyn incidentally is Gwyn at Nith, the son of Nodons who was a British god so we're very close to the, the divine world the pagan divine world here and here was Gwyn on his throne with surrounded by retainers and musicians and beautiful maidens and he invited Cochran to eat some food well Cochran being a good Celt knew very well that he mustn't eat fairy food uh, that traps him so he refused Gwyn then drew attention to the clothes that his retainers wore which were very fine sort of uniforms of red and blue don't you think those are very fine liveries he says well says Cochran they're alright in their way uh, but uh, the red is the red of fire and the blue is the blue of cold in other words they were hellish Gwyn didn't quite know what to say to this and Carlton suddenly produced his flask of holy water and tossed it in all directions uh, the fairy folk all vanished and he found himself alone outside on the tor as I'm sure some of you know the idea that the tor is hollow goes on into modern times and there are other stories of the same type but this idea that there is another world very close to us 
of spirits, fairy folk, neutral angels, whatever. And in Ireland, of course, Betuatha de Danan, who are supposed to have been once uh, semi-divine human inhabitants, and then when the Gaelic people came along, they withdrew into the fairy hills, and they're now the aristocracy of fairy folk, but they're still there. Now, if we turn to the uh, the Welsh collection called Mavnogion, we find a very interesting interlacing of divine and human. If we take one of the stories here, we're told about a uh, Welsh king named Twith who had been in the other world actually for a time. And then he had a very strange encounter. One day he was at the royal seat of Arberth with his courtiers and they climbed to an enchanted mound. A lady rode by on a majestic white horse. Curious to know who she was, I'm summarizing of course, this is not the original text, much longer. Uh, curious to know who she was, he sent a messenger to ask. But although she rode at a leisurely rate, he could not overtake her. On two further days they saw her and chased her with the swiftest horses they had, yet still she kept pacing gently ahead. At last Quirth called out to her, and she halted at once, saying she had come there expressly to see him. Her name was Rhiannon, and she desired his help, because her father was giving her in marriage to a suitor she did not want. Well, the rest of this story seems like a sort of fairy tale, about the wooing, and how they produced a son named Kudiri, and so forth. But in fact, Rhiannon is the Welsh form of Rigantona, a British name, which meant the Great Queen. And she, we, we know about Rigantona. Her other name, uh, well her proper name, was Epona. She was a horse goddess. She is associated with horses and various other things. She was quite popular even with the Roman cavalry, who had shrines to her. And the great white horse on the Berkshire Downs Uppingdon is very likely a representation or an emblem of the horse goddess. So here she is, you see, uh, appearing in the story as a sort of fairy woman. She's not, not, not exactly human. She rides this mysterious horse that always keeps ahead, however, however fast you ride, and so forth. So, they have a son named Pradiri, who runs through several of these stories. So this gives us, you see, a goddess. And Pradiri is one of the chief warriors of a king called Bran, Bran the Blessed. There is another god, or at least a semi-divine being. Bran means the raven. And he would seem to have been a god whose form was the raven as Rigantona had the form of a horse. And in the second story, which I will summarize, it's a page or two here, I think it's worth summarizing, this may give you the flavor of some of these stories. About this time, Bran the Blessed rose to be supreme king of Britain, the island of the mighty. One day he was at Harleth with his kinsfolk, among them a brother by the name of Ethnisian, a strange half-crazy person and a troublemaker. Matolo, king of Ireland, sailed in with a fleet of thirteen ships. 
he asked for the hand of Brand's sister Branwen and proposed an alliance. This was agreed and Brand, Branwen and Metulloch went to Aberfroy and Anglesey with their followers for the wedding. They sat down to feast in tents. Bran, a giant, had never been contained in a house. So you see, here we have a superhuman being at once. If Nissian was affronted at Bran's consenting to the marriage without consulting him, Next day he maimed the Irishman's horses. Metulloch, taking no leave, set off in a fury to return to Ireland. When Bran heard what had happened, he sent messengers after the king, offering to replace the horses and to present him with a gold plate and a silver staff in token of reparation. The Irish retraced their steps, but Metulloch remained cool. Bran increased his offer, giving the king a magical cauldron with the power of regeneration. Here is another theme because we find constantly in these stories the magic cauldron in various forms, the great cooking vessel with magical powers. There is still one in existence. This is called the Gundestrup cauldron. Uh, it's in the National Museum in Copenhagen, curiously enough. It was probably a gift to a northern king from a Celtic one, and it has all sorts of extraordinary designs and figures all over it. With this one, if a man who had been strained was quickly placed in it, he would revive intact, except that he would not be able to speak. So there's a little more about this cauldron. Matoloch took his bride, Brandwin, home with and she bore a son, Worm. But there was continued to be trouble, and Branwen was degraded at the court. She was first to work, forced to work in the kitchen, and the nobles imposed a ban on travel so that she couldn't tell her brother Bran back in Britain what was happening to her. At last she sent him a message by tying it to a trained starling. He assembled an army, including Pradieri, whom I mentioned, and set off for Ireland, leaving a council of seven in charge in Britain, headed by his son Caradog. The army sailed across the sea, but the giant Bran waded, in those days, there was little deep water between the islands. This is very interesting. This seems to be taking us back thousands of, thousands of years BC, when there was very little water between Britain and Ireland. It grew wide only afterwards, when the ocean encroached. The Irish king's swineherds were the first to sight the Britons. They told him a mountain and a forest were approaching over the water. The mountain was brand, the trees were the masts of his ships. Judging resistance to be futile, Metalloch offered to abdicate and assign the kingship of Ireland to his young son Gwern, who was Brand's nephew. However, treachery developed, there was a fight, and many people died. Uh, the Irish gained the upper hand because they had this cauldron of regeneration, and when their men were killed, they put, kept putting them in. Uh, the crazy brother finally saw what he had done and broke the cauldron. It was too late. The Irish were killed. <clears throat> Only nine Britons were left. Branwen herself, Brand himself, and seven warriors. And Brand had been mortally wounded within the foot with a poisoned spear. He told his companions to cut his head off and take it back with them to Britain. They should keep it at Harlech where it would remain uncorrupted and they would live in happy enchantment for seven years with three birds that belonged to Pradera's mother, Rhiannon, singing to them. 
Then they must take the head to a royal hall at Gualis and Pempro, and there they would remain eighty years. But eventually one of them would open a door on the side towards Cornwall, and then the spell would snap, and they should carry the head to London and bury it on the White Mount with its face towards the continent. Well, this was fulfilled. Uh, they were kept in this mysterious trance with, the, with Bran's head and the birds of Rhiannon singing to them across the water. At last the spell was broken. They took the head to London and buried it on the White Mount. Well, we have here something that relates to a Celtic cult of heads. Many of these isolated heads have been found in Celtic holy places. So again we're getting something very ancient and mysterious. Now the White Mount in London is Tower Hill. This is where Bran's raven his head was buried and there are ravens there in the tower to this day as you know. And <clears throat> the legend is that um, the British monarchy will last as long as there are ravens in the tower. So Bran continues to survive in raven form in the Tower of London. And Bran appears in other settings. There's an Irish story where he makes an, a voyage to the other world, the paradise across the ocean. And he comes through into the stories of the Grail under the name of Bron as one of the companions of St. Joseph and as the, uh, as the custodian of the Grail. Well, you can see what a very strange mixture this is. We're tra having traditions that cover thousands of years, some very ancient, some comparatively late, some from around the turn of the Christian era, some later still, because the <coughs> brands hall at Abertroth in Anglesey it has been dug up and it was actually a Roman building it wasn't earlier than that but <clears throat> then we come to somebody we, uh, we know a good deal better Brand's head didn't stay on Tower Hill it acted there as a talisman a protection against plagues and invasions from abroad and then it was dug up the Welsh call this one of the three wicked uncoverings or the three unfortunate disclosures and the person who did dug it up was no other than our friend Arthur he said Britain shouldn't rely on this kind of magic it should rely on its own strength well the result of digging the head up was that the magical protection was removed and the Anglo-Saxon conquered the country so with Arthur we're getting to what we might call a mythification of history. There's no history in the brand story. But with Arthur, we're dealing with a rather very shadowy period, but a real period in British history, about the 5th century AD, perhaps a little later. Uh, <clears throat> Arthur is not another god. Some people have tried to make this out, but there's no evidence for this. So far as he is a real person, he seems to be a British king who led a patriotic revival during the Saxon invasion. But of course, most of what he said about Arthur is legend. It's probably derived from stories of other people and some myth and so on. But again, we can touch something real 
because according to an early, quite early tradition, Arthur's headquarters, Camelot, was at Cadbury Castle, which is a few miles from here, and that has been excavated, and we know that it was fortified on a massive scale at about the right time, and nothing else quite like the fortifications at Cadbury has been found anywhere else in Britain. But although Geoffrey of Monmouth was responsible for a great deal of the Arthur story, but not all of it by a long way, there is an early Welsh story in the Mavenogion called Kilhoch and Olwen, where Arthur seems to have become <clears throat> a sort of great warrior chief ruling over Britain. Everybody in British legend practically is supposed to be at his court and it's a very wild, very funny sort of, sort of story full of giants and monsters and things. And according to the folklore, of course, Arthur didn't die. He's asleep in a cave. He will eventually wake up and restore his kingdom. Some years ago, I was asked to do a guidebook to Arthurian places in Britain. You may be interested to know that Arthur is asleep in 15 caves. Only one or two of them are real. With most of them, uh, they're mysterious caves that only open once a year or something like that. The oldest is at Cadbury itself, um, Cadbury Castle. During the excavation there, people came to us a number of times and said, I know where that cave was. Of course, it would be silted up by now, but there might have been a cave. But the story tended to begin well, one Saturday night as I was going home from the Red Lion, which weakened credibility, but eventually an old gentleman came along who seemed much more credible. He knew his stuff and he said, well, I can show you. There's a place in the hillside there where if you take a metal probe and hammer it in horizontally, it never hits bedrock. There's a hollow there. It's filled up with earth now. But this was a cave once. So there may be something in that story. More usually, uh, the story is that uh, somebody is shown the cave by a magician or by Merlin in person and usually has an unfortunate experience. And again we're touching something very ancient. Because this idea of Arthur being asleep in a cave seems to go back to an ancient British belief in a god who was sleeping in a cave somewhere on a western island. And this is actually recorded by the Greek author Plutarch in the first century. And Arthur goes on another world quest himself. Before ever there are romantic stories about him in the Middle Ages, it's in a very obscure Welsh poem. It's called The Spoils of Enwyn. There is the other world again. And Arthur and some of his followers go on this dangerous quest for a cauldron. There is another magic cauldron. This is the ancestor of the story of the quest of the Grail. And the cauldron is in the custody of nine maidens. And here we touch one more story. There was a British goddess, or Celtic goddess, called Matrona, who is known in Britain and her name goes through various mutations and finally she becomes Morgan Morgan Le Fay 
who turns up in the Arthurian romances. But we meet her first in Geoffrey of Monmouth's Life of Merlin, where she is a benign healer and enchantress who lives on Avalon, the enchanted Apple Island. She receives Arthur after wounded after his last battle and undertakes to heal him. And she lives there with a sisterhood of nine, nine enchantresses with magical powers. Now there are actual records of Celtic groups of nine women living on islands with magical powers. And this relates to the nine maidens who keep the magical cauldron of the, of the other world. Now, something very interesting happens with Morgan, where we can see the way these stories did get transformed. In this first version, she is a demigoddess and she is a good character. She's a healer. She works good magic. She heals Arthur, or at least she undertakes to. But as you probably know, as you go on in the stories of King Arthur in the Middle Ages, she becomes sinister. She becomes a witch. She becomes a troublemaker. And this tells us one thing more about the way these stories got transformed. As I said, the Celts, the Celtic Christians, didn't feel that pagan things were absolutely evil at all. But by the time you get to medieval Christianity, it's a, it's a more a tougher, a more authoritative kind of Christianity. You're getting more and more the idea that anything pagan or anything to do with magic must be of the devil. So here you had the character of Morgan, a traditional character, originally a goddess, and indeed medieval writers knew this. But they couldn't accept that she could be good so as time went on and more stories were told, she had to become a witch, a troublemaker, an evil figure. And here we can see in the treatment of a Celtic myth something far greater and more terrible that were developed in real life from the 15th century on. The great persecution of witches, so-called, that went on for 200 years, took hundreds of thousands of lives, because by then the idea had developed that anything that savoured of magic, even the village wise woman with her herbs, was part of a great devilish conspiracy and must be stamped out. And you can see this very thing developing in the treatment of Celtic mythology. Well, this is in the life of Merlin, and of course there is a lot more we could say about Merlin, but I think the time runs short but I'd like to say one thing about Merlin because it points up so clearly what I've been saying and I think C.S. Lewis made this point very well in one of his science fiction novels That Hideous Strength he pointed out that a person like Merlin around the 5th century AD would very possibly have been a druid and a Christian it wouldn't have been felt that there was any conflict. There was, wasn't the same black and white about it at all. And it's only later that things begin to diverge and you get on the one hand official Christianity and then on the other hand the rest, 
which is condemned as evil, leading to the persecution of witches. But Lewis says quite rightly that this, the black and white distinction between the old order and the new comes gradually and later. And Merlin would have been had her foot in both worlds. And this is how, more or less, how he was presented in Borman's film Excalibur. He belongs to the old order, but he sees the new one is coming in. So this helps us to understand this very strange thing that we've been talking about. Way down is a pagan mythology which was probably very rich in Britain, just as we know it was in Ireland. But it gets overlaid and it gets altered. First the Celts become Christians. Now this doesn't make all that much difference, as I said. They couldn't call them gods and goddesses anymore, but they could keep the same stories. They could turn them into kings, queens, enchanters, or whatever. So, you're only one step from the original. But then there's another step. The Anglo-Saxons coming in, imposing their language, their government, and so forth, so that the Celtic people over most of what is now England became very much second-class citizens and their traditions were lost more and more. So that's another step away. Then you come to the literary end in the Middle Ages. Geoffrey of Monmouth taking up stories like these and building them into something very different probably of his own. This extraordinary pseudo-history of Britain. The history of King Arthur which is certainly largely fictitious and the medieval romancers taking these things recasting them all in their own style for their own audiences and bringing in of course many many other themes so that the Celtic part is more and more difficult to discern even in the grail of stories a third step and then the fourth step going on at the same time the effect of Christianity becoming harder, more hierarchical, more authoritative in the Middle Ages, <clears throat> more and more hostile to anything pagan, even survivals and magic, which gives one more step and has the effect of taking, for instance, a character like Morgan, who was originally a goddess, and, and turning her into a fairly sinister character, a witch, so we have this extraordinary process that we can't really get directly at the mythology at all, or hardly, as we can with Greek mythology. It's elusive. The quest has to go down through layers and pick up clues here and there, and stories here and there, and consider which are authentic and which are not. To my mind, the process of getting back, so far as we can, to the to the British mythology is something almost like psychoanalysis or we could might even say hypnotic regression with the individual just as the psychologist or the hypnotist gets down through the consciousness what the person thinks or believes or chooses to remember or say into deeper things 
early experiences, suppressed beliefs, forgotten experiences, and so on. It seems to be almost like that. It's a strange process, it's a very difficult one. We can't be sure of the results. And yet, you know, I have a feeling that that makes it all the more fascinating. Arthur said that Britain should not rely on a magical talisman. Britain should rely on its own strength. And he dug up the head. We are not told what happened to the head afterwards, at least in any ancient source. Some years ago, I remember a play which introduced this called The Island of the Mighty. And in there, uh, Arthur was supposed to be marching around with Brand Scow on his standard. But I think this was, uh, this was an invention of the dramatist. Uh, it's, it's not authentic. Now, some people, as you say, do believe that the Druids had ideas which fitted, fitted in very well with Christianity. So they were quite ready to accept it. Uh, although, of course, well, what the, uh, the result was the kind of Celtic Christianity I'm speaking of that did to some extent have it both ways. If we knew more about the Druids, it would be easier to say the story of Jesus visiting Britain is probably not an ancient one. I know quite a lot of people believe it, but it can't really be traced back very far. I, my own belief is that it was due to a misunderstanding of the medieval text, but we needn't go into that. But whether or not there is anything in that story, yes, it's quite possible that they found some sort of uh, rapprochement, possibly in the idea of the, the dying god, which the Druids may very well have had. What happens then is that you have this having it both ways kind of Christianity, that as C.S. Lewis said, Merlin could have been a Druid and a Christian. Then the Celtic Christianity, it was different in quite a number of ways. <coughs> One thing, as there were no great cities, you didn't have the church hierarchy with bishops it had on the continent. Celtic Christianity was based on communities, uh, communities of monks, of nuns, and some of men and women together, often with an abbess presiding over them. The status of women was considerably higher. They were much freer to roam. They, they had books that were forbidden on the continent. They were not, <clears throat> they were not separate. Some people think that, that the Celtic Church was something quite apart from the continent and was then more or less dragged in by Rome. Uh, this is not so. They, uh, they accepted that they were part of the general church, but they, uh, they did things very much in their own way. Uh, eventually the clash did come because the, uh, when it came to the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons, the northern ones were converted from Iona, which was a Celtic community, but down in the southeast they were converted by the Roman mission of St. Augustine, who established the Sea of Canterbury and so forth. And of course there was bound to be a clash sooner or later. Uh, Augustine wanted to bring the Welsh bishops into his mission, but they refused to cooperate. So the division went on. There were points of of practice, like how they calculated the date of Easter and things of that kind, 
but certainly it was more a matter of a different uh, Christianity in a different spirit it wasn't a question of a separate body being suddenly conquered or anything of that kind it was a very mixed sort of process the northern, the northern Anglo-Saxons were converted by Celtic missionaries the southern ones by Roman missionaries and so forth but in the end, yes the, the Roman system won out but a lot of the spirit of Celtic Christianity lingered on and it's still there in things like the story of the Holy Grail about spiritual experiences which don't seem very orthodox sometimes but because the basic question whether the Druids would have been receptive to Christianity I think we can only say we don't know enough about them but we can say that when the Celtic Christians come into the more or less out into daylight they were certainly much closer to the pagan world than Christians on the continent I presumably in the Celtic Church they uh, said Mass in much the same way and they would have had a, uh, a chalice well in fact there are surviving chalices in Ireland some very fine, very fine items the Yamar chalice for instance but these seem to have been purely Christian liturgical purposes I don't know of any myths about them mentioned there about the Celts worshipping the giants in the islands of the west uh, would there have been any landscapes in that well I don't know about worshipping there is a belief that there were giants in the country of old very likely because of great monuments like Stonehenge which they could believe ordinary humans could never have put up Geoffrey uh, of Monmouth has the belief and in fact he says that Stonehenge the stones were originally from Africa they were brought over by giants and set up in Ireland and they had healing properties if you poured water over them it would heal anybody who sat underneath and allowed the water to lave them now the idea of the giants coming from the west I don't know, I, I don't know of that but the Irish certainly had very detailed beliefs about land to the west and there is a whole quite a number of Irish stories about people that in fact in one of them Bran himself figures who go out and find these strange islands and sort of earthly paradises over the seas of the west so there was a very strong belief in land in the Atlantic which may indeed have been connected with the belief in Atlantis but I don't know I, I know in some of these stories you did there are giants on the islands but whether there was any supposition that the giants in the British Isles came from the islands I can't recall offhand no according to the legend Bran was dug up on Tower Hill but archaeologists have found quite a lot of stone heads in sacred places in there which show that the, the Celts had a great veneration for the head they probably believed that it uh, embodied the spirit or something and it is a fact that in modern times uh, some of the Siberian shamans the people will preserve a shaman's head or indeed the skull when the flesh has rotted away and it's still believed to have miraculous powers St. Brendan was a real person somewhere about 500 odd AD historically he founded monasteries in the west of Ireland 
but he was a sea voyager he came to be known as Brendan the Navigator and some of the Irish monks were very adventuresome on the sea they had a very good type of boat the curra you still see curras in the west of Ireland a skin boat uh, hides over a frame in those days and until Irish monks wandered up through the Hebrides and further north found in communities uh, perhaps often for safety from marauders or to get away from the world and its troubles and they undoubtedly went a very long way uh, we know that Irish monks founded communities in the Faroe Islands and even in Iceland and some people think they, they may have gone further than that well Brendan according to legend made a great voyage in search of the earthly paradise which was supposed to be somewhere over the ocean to the west and um, this was built up rather in the style of some of the Irish voyage romances I've been speaking of but much more circumstantial whoever wrote this story knew quite a lot of geography and you can trace where Brendan is supposed to have gone very interesting work but it is related to these beliefs about land to the west which the Irish held very strongly and um, some of it was based on real voyages certainly getting as far as Iceland quite possibly Greenland some people think there was an Irish discovery of America uh, and even that some uh, ruins in New England are Irish but this is much more doubtful well I think we have to accept that once Britain was part of the Roman Empire Latin was the language of literacy of uh, legal documents of wills of messages anything and there is no evidence for writing in British apart from proper names on monuments and things of that sort which is a great pity but indeed there might, something might turn up not necessarily in Britain because the reason why the northwest corner of France is called Brittany is that it was largely populated from Britain uh, it used to be Armorica and then in the 5th and 6th centuries there was a big emigration from Britain perhaps partly trying to get away from the troubles of the time and the, Bre the Breton language is closely related to Welsh it's related to the old British language and uh, I still cherish a hope that there may be things in Brittany that have never, pro never been properly examined so far as um, philologists know there was one Celtic British language which would have been spoken with various dialects throughout the country up to about the 5th or 6th century and then in the 6th century it begins to break up uh, so you, you get Welsh branching off Cornish Breton branching off and getting more different so the earliest Welsh is so far as we know the poems of the Bards Narin and Taliesin towards the end of the 6th century by that time there is a recognisable Welsh language we derive from a Celtic British language and actually philologists can say quite a lot about this uh, because it survives in place names the, you, you find that if people like the Saxons conquer a country they may impose their language 
but a lot of the old place names survive, particularly names of rivers, and in Thames is a Celtic name, for instance. And even in the United States, uh, where the uh, people from Europe enormously outnumbered the Native Americans, and the Native Americans indeed largely died, nine-tenths of them died out from disease and genocide, still there are many, many Indian place names in America, particularly names of rivers, because they just go on. And in Britain, uh, there are many names of places and hills and rivers, lakes and so forth, which are derived from the old Celtic British. So, philologists can say something about, about that language. Welsh is one of the Indo-European families of languages. Hebrew is one of the Semitic family, and uh, there's not much of an overlap.